Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15? The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is on the resurrection of the dead. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> Which, it's a big chapter. It's one of the most significant chapters. It might be the biggest in 1 Corinthians. It might be the most lengthy discussion on the resurrection of the dead in the whole Bible. So we shouldn't miss it. Paul must have a reason for doing this. And we're going to get to that reason today. We're going to find out that this is not just an academic discussion, but he's on his way to something. And I want to offer an example or a thought. It's a hypothetical. I want to offer it up front so that we have a category to process uh, an idea that we're going to come across. We're going to come across a bizarre example of something weird taking place in the church. And... Uh, I want to kind of help us brace for that with a sense of these sorts of things also happen in our lives. So let me give you this hypothetical. You don't have to have experienced this, but I think if you're an adult, you've been around a while, you have either experienced this or you've seen this, a rendition of this uh, play out in one way, shape, or form. At least you'll say, yeah, I get this. Imagine that someone you know, a colleague, dies passes away, this individual is not that spiritual, you never thought of them as religious or godly or Christian for that matter. They were just, you know, your one each person in the world who, uh, you know, lived, worked, pursued retirement, hoped the best for his kids and passed. And you're at his memorial service and in your, you're at the service, you're in the line, the receiving line for the family, you're gonna go up and say some comforting words to the surviving family and someone in front of you who you also know is in line and another colleague and they're getting ready, they're approaching the deceased's family. And this person also is, you don't know them to be particularly religious. You just know them as kind of a, someone you worked with for a period of time. They're not, they never talked about God. They did things that would make you think they're not particularly Christian or not committed to the way of Christ. But here they are, they want to honor the dead. Uh, they want to care for the family. And they get up there and you hear them say, from, from one essentially non-religious person to another, you hear them say, I know he's in a better place. Okay, that's the scenario. Now, I don't think that that's unusual. I think in a largely post-Christian culture where we find ourselves, people go massive tracks of time without really thinking about things spiritually, and then they find themselves cornered by something that is inexorably, inexorably spiritual like death. And they stumble and struggle with words to say, and sometimes statements that don't even match your life or your belief structure come out of your mouth. Like, I know he's in a better place. Why would someone say that, especially if they're not that religious? Not religious people say these things all the time. All the time. Just got to have faith. I know it'll all work out. I'm sure he's in a better place. These statements are commonplace in an increasingly post-Christian realm. So I think, you know, one way, one of the reasons someone might say that is because they're well-wishing. It's an awkward kind, you know, especially if you haven't gone to a lot of funerals. You're in a receiving line. You're sort of like, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? You get there. I know he's in a better place. And you're like, why did I say that? Of all the things I could have said. So for some reason, it's kind of well-wishing. For others, it might be therapeutic. Death is an uncomfortable subject for some. 
And so when confronted by the notion of death, there's sort of a psychological therapeutic of, I just have to imagine this isn't it. It's almost self-conjured resurrection. That doesn't exist. Okay. But nonetheless, it's a therapeutic. Sometimes people are a little bit superstitious, you know, when it gets up close and personal, the mystery of death comes. They actually have some superstitions about these things. I would describe superstition as um, occasional religious practices that take place in your life that are inconsistent with your otherwise mundane uh, secular lifestyle. Like for someone who's generally not religious, but they come to one place and they are, I'd say that's kind of classical superstition. And you can imagine there's like 30 other reasons why someone might do what I described. It's a hypothetical. Uh, but you can imagine, especially if you've been to a few memorial services or funerals. Now, I'm not going to try to resolve that moment. Okay, we're not going to unstitch it. I merely offer it to you because we're about to see something that's bizarre and I don't want you to think, whoa, those people are crazy. Who would do or think of such a thing like that? I just want us to know, hey, we do these sorts of weird, inexplicable things where we say irrational things about life and death as commonplace. So at least if we kind of join, have some fellowship with the sorts of forces that are in the church in Corinth, I think we we'll set ourselves up to learn a little better. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole thing is about the resurrection of the dead, but Paul has, a, has a, a path he's on. So he starts off with the historical witness of the resurrection of Christ. He says, listen, Jesus Christ was crucified, resurrected according to the scriptures, and lots of people have seen him, most of whom are still alive. The implication is, if you doubt me, go ask them. There's like 500 people who saw him. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. But most are alive. So that's how this conversation started, was about the resurrection of Jesus, to which Paul turns and starts to get a little bit more like theologically logical. He links the resurrection of Jesus with the resurrection of the dead and vice versa. He's going to say, and here's the deal. If you don't think that we will resurrect from the dead because we're humans, then Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead because he's a human also. He says it's a non sequitur to say, well, Jesus did it, but we're not going to do it. If people don't rise, then Jesus will not rise, or did not rise, because he's a person. But if Jesus rose, we will rise. And behind that, behind that logical argument is a force of, you need to appreciate the entire reason Jesus came taking on the form and likeness of a human. Why else did he do that? Why did he adopt intrinsic commonality with humanity if not to rescue us from, not to do something for us? And he did. He rose, so we will rise. That's his logic. And last week we saw where he moved kind of from logic to a picture of the end. Here's how it's all going to play out. And what, he, what Paul did is he sort of positioned the resurrection of the dead as a part of a larger whole. Like in the last orchestral movement of the cosmic end of God, the resurrection of the dead is part, but it's not the way you understand the whole thing, actually. The, you might understand the whole thing by the act of Jesus Christ vanquishing death entirely, destroying death completely. You might, in saying that, inside of that is the encouragement of, if you don't think that the dead rise, then 
Jesus has either a lot of work he still has to do or he failed because he's going to put death to death. Well, today, we are going to deal with impact. Not the argument per se, but the practical implications, the impact in our daily life if we don't think the dead are raised. So that's where we're going to be today. In verse 29, so chapter 15, verse 29, which starts with the word otherwise, so I'll kind of point to the thought that he's otherwising. Therefore, the dead will be raised otherwise. Okay, that's how we'll read it. I just want to read verse 29 because it's, it's got enough uh, interest in it of itself. So the dead are, of course, going to be raised. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So if you're a young Christian and you're thinking, what? I just want you to know that there's old Christians in here who are thinking, what? This is the only reference in the word of God to this practice. Okay? So it creates a lot of problems. One of the problems is, first of all, nearly every translation in this room has about the very same meaning that I read. What I'm saying is it's not linguistically complicated. The grammar's clear. It's an easy sentence to translate. That's what creates the problem for scholars is we don't have another alternative way of reading this passage. So the language is what you see. The question is, what does it mean? In other words, what exactly is Paul talking about? You might ask, is he saying that some people are literally going into the waters of baptism on behalf of someone who's already died? And the answer, I would say, seems to be yes. It's called vicarious baptism. You're getting baptized on behalf of a dead friend, relative, member of the church, something like that. Okay? So that's strange. But then connected to the strange is, why would Paul use this example? Is he condoning the practice by its... Right, does the use of the example assume now that the practice is condoned? That's one of the challenges here. And to that I would say, I would say, I don't think this, that's what he's trying to do. I think he's ultimately trying to construct a basic argument, which is, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected, your behavior is ridiculous. It's absurd. He's creating an absurdity. This is the basic, the basic heart of the argument here. Is if the dead are not raised, well, why in the world are you getting baptized for the dead? Why do anything for the dead? They're dead. He's kind of grabbing the most extreme counterexample that might be afloat somewhere in the church, and he's pointing at it and saying, that is patently absurd if you're literally entertaining the notion that the dead are not going to be resurrected. Okay? I'd say that's his basic argument. I think the fact that Paul's using this example doesn't necessarily mean he's condoning it. It does suggest to me that it's alive somewhere under the umbrella of the church. So to that, I'll just say this. I'll say these few words because 
Paul's use of it's more important than the issue itself, but I would say there is no occasion in Christian history where this practice has been seen as orthodox practice. Not one occasion. So we don't, we don't find any point from the, the apostolic fathers to the, founding, to the fathers of the faith to now where what I would say is the Christian church is vicariously baptizing people for dead, dead relatives. <clears throat> what we do find, however, is all through, the, all through the ages, you get about one or two degrees away from Orthodox Christianity, and there is some interest in this. So even to this day, right, Mormons practice vicarious baptism. This is, by the way, why, I don't know if you knew that Mormons have such strong genealogical databases. You know why? Because they're baptizing for the dead. They want to know their relatives. That's how that got started. So it is being practiced. When you get to the Gnostics, you get to New Age, you get, to, you, you get a couple degrees away from like Heartwood Christianity out into these sort of cultic spaces, and you find that the management of my dead relatives starts to become important. The veneration of your elders, whether it's an Eastern tradition, the management of my ancestors. And you can imagine this. It's difficult for some people to accept the implications of Jesus Christ in their own life because of what it means for their uncle or their aunt who passed away, who they know. I guess that means they're not in heaven. I have had people who have refused to choose to follow Jesus because of what it would mean for their dead relatives. So on this, I think there's a commonality of loving people and family, you know, people whose families matter to them We wonder about these things. And perhaps it's alive somewhere in the church. So anyway, there are, one scholar pointed out, there's over 200 different explanations for this passage. Another scholar, and I like this guy better, said "Eh, about 40. So let's just limit ourselves to 40. When there's over 40 ways of looking at a passage, what does that tell you? It tells you we don't know what it means. We don't really know. So I'll give you my two cents on how to work this out, but, you know, it's probably worth two cents. So I I would say this. I accept the plain reading of this passage, that vicarious baptism is a thing, and that it is taking place uh, inside the movement of Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth in one way, shape, or form. Okay? But I do not read Paul's approval in this. Rather, I read his intended absurdity. Like, you're doing that and you're entertaining the notion that the dead aren't raised. Help me out here. That is patently ridiculous. Okay? I think what he's doing is grabbing the best case, the best example he can find that they're familiar with that emphasizes the absurdity of this. And it doesn't surprise me, by the way, that Corinth might be sort of off the deep end on baptism because if you open the letter of the first Corinthians and you get right past the greeting, you get to chapter one, subject one is, I'm really concerned about you, my brothers and sisters. It's like you're about to shipwreck your faith. You're going off the deep end. There's divisions among you and you know what the issue is. The first issue he introduces, first Corinthians one, chapter one, baptism. Some of you are all wound up that so-and-so baptized him and who baptized him. And, well, I mean, what does that even suggest when you're, you're consumed with who baptized you? Does the baptizer have some sort of power? Does the waters have mystical power? Is there some sort of grace that's imputed through the, the actual giving? You already can tell, right? 
The whole book of 1 Corinthians, you're like, this is a church of mad theological science experiments. So it's not hard for me to imagine that this might be one of these spin-off ideas. And he's pointing at it going, somehow you're allowing that to be inside your church and you're entertaining the notion that the dead aren't even resurrected. I would call this, it's an absurd absurdity. And I'm going to say it that way because we're going to come to a second absurdity in a moment that's quite reasonable. Like a sensible absurdity is next. This is what I would, would call an absurd absurdity, a ridiculous absurdity. That's kind of how I see this. Okay, let's look at the next one. <clears throat> well, actually, before I do, I just want to read one passage from 1 Corinthians, just to give you a sense of Paul's mind. This is 1 Corinthians 1, right after he talks about this baptism, the baptism dust up. Listen to Paul's language here. This is just 117. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Did you hear that? It's already this motion of him diminishing his role in baptism and even the practice. Okay? Comma, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see here, Paul is doing a lot of work to say these second and third order subjects that you're so fascinated in are taking you down dangerous paths. What is central is Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, and subsequently his resurrection. How about we stay there? Okay, that's in, the, that's in the heart of Paul throughout this whole letter, and I think we're just seeing a good example of that. Okay, let's look at the next several verses. Here's the second absurdity in the text. This is Paul writing. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, so the first absurdity is sort of their absurdity. It's third person. Some people are doing this. They're doing this. Okay, the second absurdity that Paul gives is his own. My absurdity, he would say. Our first person. He says, and another thing. If the dead are not raised, then what am I doing? Spending my life out, forfeiting all the pleasures of this life for the work of Jesus Christ. If the dead are not raised, why in the world am I wasting myself away? And he even says something like, I say this out of my pride for you. It's kind of a twisty phrase. I think this is, I think this is what he's getting at, is something like my pride in you church of corinth makes me protest all the more because you know of jesus only because i've adopted a lifestyle that's dependent on the resurrection of the dead if i did not live as though the dead are resurrected you would have never heard of jesus is what i think he's implying here you only know god because I sacrificed my life to get him to you. I've been imprisoned, stoned, beat, thrown out, hunted down, all these things. I came in, he'll say this in 1 Corinthians, I came into you with great fear and trembling. Great fear and trembling. Like not overly proud, but worn out, wrung out, is how Paul described himself. My life was nearly wrung out when I came to you. And then he says, I picked up a day job. 
so that even, even while I was in your city, my manner of living and my need for money would not be an impediment to you in the gospel. In every way, I have counted my own life forfeit so that you might know Jesus. And now you're wondering if Jesus, if the dead are actually raised, do you think I would have done any of that if the dead weren't raised? This is none of it. It's absurd. It's a ridiculous absurdity to do. I won't say it's ridiculous. Paul's life is a quite, it's a sensible absurdity, right? The sort of superstition of the baptism for the dead, that's kind of a ridiculous one. Paul's is like a, well, if he's wrong, it's, I mean, it's absurd, but at least his life is consistent with his thinking. Paul says this, if the dead don't rise, if you were going to put it into like, I would say at least 1985 language, if the dead are not going to rise, then sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You're going to get in the 90s, you would say, just do it. If you were going to say it now, you might say, whatevs. I don't know what you'd say now. My kids would say, dad, you don't know what they say now. (laughs) Trust me, and don't try to. But one flows from the other. That's what he's saying is the knowledge that we will rise again is the necessary ingredient to offer up this life now. It's necessary. If we're not going to rise again, then get about, like get as much in this life as you can. Basically, this is all there is. That's what Paul's saying. If the dead are not raised, he's saying then my life is an absurdity. All right. You have these two absurdities, and I find them interesting because they are, they're almost opposites. On the one hand, you have sort of a superstitious, that's what I want to call it, a superstitious behavior of the church. It's clearly, in my mind, I would say, in practice, has sort of gone off the rails. Too much emphasis in baptism, not enough emphasis in Jesus, okay? Which you might say is allowing them to incubate a thought of maybe the dead aren't raised again. So once you're off the center, it's amazing what you can imagine. You ever been on a merry-go-round? This is back in the day before lawsuits. <laughs> you, in the merry-go-rounds, if you were in the center of the merry-go-round, it could go really fast and you could hold on. But if you slid, you know, some of you know, like you're like, I cannot believe we did that. That was so dangerous. Like merry-go-rounds invented lawsuits. If you slid to the outside, you got flung out. This is the church in Corinth. They've been centrifuged out from the gospel. And so now they're like spiraling out of control down different alleys. I mean, that's just, it's a, I think a good example, a good way of thinking about the church in Corinth. Paul's saying, come back in. You're entertaining that silly idea and you're doing that? Ridiculous. So you have these two different absurdities. One that's just nonsensical and the other one that's really quite sensible. If the dead are in fact resurrected, Paul's life is consistent with that teaching. There. One more ingredient, and then we'll kind of end the two questions. Look at verses 33 and 34. You're going to see kind of Paul's countenance grow dark here. It tells us this is a real problem. He's trying to save the church from, from harm. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
That's a wake-up call. What Paul's saying is, is you cannot tamper with the resurrection of the dead as though it doesn't have any ill effect. It will cause an avalanche against your faith. An avalanche. Be care- it says here, right, bad company ruins good morals. How would you say that? In, 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 there's other ways to say that. I think, you know, I can imagine that I, I would have an aunt who might say something like, um, be careful who you associate with. That's kind of what Paul's saying, right? There clearly seems to be an adversary in the church, having an influence on the church. Someone might say, if you don't like who your kids are hanging out with, you might just say, I'm just worried that Tommy's going to rub off on my kid. That's how you might say it, right? Bad company ruins morals. You might say, ideas have consequences. Wake up to your thinking. Do not tamper with this, is what Paul's saying. I had a I had a uh, professor in college. When I came back to the Lord, I, I like to think in college, I fell in love with Jesus for the first time again. And I, I did that with a, a Catholic, a very devout Catholic professor, graduate of Notre Dame. He's teaching at a seminary now. But he loved the Lord. So we had some differences in the way we looked at things. But man, he loved Jesus Christ and he loved me. And so I'd go up to his office and we would read together. Like two guys reading together at a military academy. It's pretty rare. Okay, I just got to tell you, it's not happening in every room. But uh, it was reading St. Augustine's where I fell back in love with the Lord again, his confessions. And in this exchange I had with John P. Hittinger was his name, uh, John D. Hittinger. Actually, I wrote him this week just to say thank you. He's still teaching. I, I, uh, in, in my exchanges with him, I'd often bring him these, why do Catholics do this kind of questions? Like, like my sort of, I'm, I'm scratching and clawing, learning truth, and now I see things that don't look, and I, I want answers. And he'd answer these questions, and I'd go away, come back the next week with other questions. But I remember distinctly coming to him with this question. I, I had been thinking, and I was a little too proud of my thinking for a change, and I said to him, if Jesus knew that he was going to be resurrected, how can we really call what he did on the cross sacrifice? I mean, after all, he comes out winning. And Dr. Hittinger said to me, We don't talk that way. He didn't answer the question. He admonished me. And I will never forget that moment. It was so wise. Like, what are you doing? Are you chasing God? Are you being smart? And since then, by the way, the question, let me ask you this way. If you know you're going to rise again, why does what you do count as sacrifice? Well, we can answer that pretty quickly, can't we? Because we don't like it. So it's, my life has long since answered the question. But he did what Paul is doing. Do you understand what you're messing with? Bad company will ruin you here. He's saying, do you think this is a harmless topic? Do you think this is just heady theology? Do you think this is impractical? Over the years in preaching, I've grown a sense that there's kind of a general mood that favors practical sermon series to, I guess what I'm doing now, which would be an impractical sermon series, okay? Usually there's like a, um, what are you, okay, you're going to preach on the resurrection for six weeks, 
great. When are you preaching on parenting? Can we get a little parenting help? How about marriage? And I hear it, I hear it. Like I'm not, it's not, I'm not throwing it your way. I'm, not, I'm just saying like I see it and I feel it. And kind of this value of uh, it's not practical until it's topically like nurtures my need. Okay? And I just want to point to something. What, what that subtly says is the really, really important doctrines of the church are not that practical. Like maybe they're valuable but not practical, okay? Like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has got me eternal life. True, it's served its purpose. Now I could use something practical. Kind of like you take the great doctrines of the church and you open up a glass case and you put them in like a trophy. You believe them, you look at them, but they don't, you don't ever take them out and use them. Okay, Paul is, Paul is challenging this, by the way. Paul is challenging this. He's saying, listen, you mess with the resurrection of the dead and you're done. You are, your life, your life in Christ is absurd. He's saying it's highly practical. Just like, just like the basic doctrine of God is our father and we are his children. Is that helpful for parenting or isn't it? God's call, if you love me, keep my commandments. God's insistence of the act of love is obedience. As a father disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines those he loves. Is that practical or not? That's the whole Bible is teaching us how to parent. It's just us having to learn that we're children so we can get it. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the act of forgiveness, right? We confess our sins God is faithful to forgive us our sins. Is that relevant for marriage? Maybe I'll ask you this way. Is there anything more relevant for marriage than the practice of confession and forgiveness? What marriage doesn't need for confession and forgiveness? This, the big teachings of the word are the most radioactive teachings of the faith. That's that's why they get tampered with. And that's what Paul is saying here is, listen, this is not a little thing. Watch out, wake up. The people who are doing this don't even know the Lord. That's what he's suggesting, wake up. Okay. <clears throat> we should ask us, you know, if, if Christ is not resurrected, we could talk about the absurdity of that. We might talk about the, well, if Christ is resurrected, what ought my life look like? And I want to offer you these two questions. These are just questions as we close, just to reflect on, um, be thoughtful about. Hopefully you're encouraged, at least in uh, gained clarity here. But here's the first one. Of the two absurdities we saw here, one was kind of nonsensical, superstitious absurdity, and the other one was very sensible absurdity, like, Paul may be wrong, but man, he's living his life consistent with it, and he's, he's putting his money where his mouth is, okay? So you have these two absurdities. Where does your life trend, do you think? I'm just saying the way you handle religious, your religion in your life, spirituality in your life, does your life look more like everybody else's except for a few spots where you get religious? Like, is, would you be that person who would surprise people by saying, don't worry, I'm sure he's in a good place? Because... 
Well, you don't look particularly religious. I would just say, does your life trend towards the ridiculous absurd or towards the sensible absurd? Like, well, there's a lot of things in this person's life that incline me to think he thinks the dead will rise again. Which leads me to my second question. And hopefully you find encouragement here. In what ways does your life have an element of absurdity to the people around you? I'm saying, what way do you do things? Do you do things that you would not do but for the fact that one day you're going to rise again? That things that you would not do because they would, why exchange the cost in this life if this life is all there is? I'm saying things that you do only, only because your confidence in Jesus Christ. Where are they? I want you to find them. You know, these areas where you're different only because of that. Because you know what that is? That there is witness. That's the word the Bible uses for that. That's witness. Witness is the way that your life is different because of what Jesus has done and what he's, the hope he's given you. Where are those things? I think if you're in Christ, I'm sure they're there. Enough talk. Where are they? That's what we want to be. We, we, we could say lots of things about Paul. We could say, you know what, though? He sold out. He considers this life rubbish compared to the life he's gained. That is either absurd or it is exactly right. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that uh, our eternal lives in you would, would be the fuel of faithfulness whether it's to cross the street to a neighbor and show undue kindness, whether it's a way of offering forgiveness to a loved one that they don't deserve, whether it's a way of saying something in a, in a meeting at work that may not be entirely popular, whether it's sitting at the lunchroom with someone who's going to cost you popularity points. Lord, we can do these things because our life is hidden in Christ. And he is not here. He's risen. Lord, we pray you give us the courage and the mind and the heart of God so that people will look at our lives and see witness. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.